Well, good morning. Hey, if we haven't met, my name, is, uh, my name is Doug. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Triumph. Really good to be with you guys today as we are finalizing and wrapping up uh, today on this series that we've entitled Citizens as we've walked through the book of, of Philippians. Uh, kind of gone from, from chapter one all the way through to the end, and today's the last day that we'll be covering it here at our West Campus. One thing to be keeping your eye out for in your emails, so if we, as long as we have your email address, over the next few days, Pastor Jay is going to send off an email. This morning, Pastor Jeff is, is preaching kind of a wrap-up sermon as well as kind of covering the last like three or four verses of Philippians over at our East Campus. And so we're going to record that and we're going to make that available and send that off to you guys because that's a message that won't be preached here. That text isn't going to be covered, but it will be sent out in an email. So keep your eyes open from that, uh, for that from Pastor Jay as you guys get a chance to wrap up as well. So here's what we're going to talk about today. So I'm going to talk, I'm going to talk about money and I'm going to talk about being financially generous to people. And I don't talk about that much. In fact, the church here, we don't talk about that all that much. There's a reason why. Uh, and it might not be a good reason why, but there is a reason why. Here's the thing. Over the years and over the decades, this, this idea of financial generosity has, uh, has been used by pastors and by churches to manipulate people into giving to them. So over the years, it's been, it's been hammered at churches, it's been talked about so much that it paints this negative picture and kind of has this dark cloud over it. So what a lot of churches like us, what we have a tendency to do is just kind of, I want to stay away from the topic so we don't kind of get swept up into that. Well, there's a problem when we do that, and that's on us, and this is our fault, but there's a problem when we do that. Because money and financial generosity is a huge part of the Christian life. And so, to prevent ourselves from looking like we're always talking about money, we just never talk about it. And by the way, I'm willing to bet that most of you, who are probably somewhere in that 40-ish range and younger, would probably agree that you have grown up with really no one ever talking about money from a biblical perspective. Because the churches stopped doing it, and unless it was talked about frequently in your home with parents, there's nowhere else that you're going to get a biblical understanding of money and how to handle what God has gifted you with. So in essence, what I'm saying to you today is, shame on us. We haven't done this enough. So we are going to talk about money. We're going to talk about financial generosity today because it's a big part of our citizenship. So the kind of the, the theme as we've gone through this is the idea that we are citizens of heaven living as foreigners here in this world, this land. We're actually the foreigners here because our citizenship is in heaven, but we're here to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. So we've talked about all these different ways in which and what it looks like practically that we live out our citizenship, citizenship in this world. And today we're going to talk about financial generosity. So we're going to talk about it. But here's what I'm not going to talk about, right? What I'm not going to do is I'm not going to ask you for any money today. Tony already did that. I'm not going to ask for any money today. All right? And I'm also not going to use this sermon as a setup to ask for money next week. Now, maybe the week after, the week after, because it is end of the year coming, and I promise we will probably talk about that, but it's not tied. It was accidental, I promise. But we are going to talk about this today because it's a big part of the Christian life. And as we end, this is what it is. 
the financial gift was given to Paul, and so this whole letter of Philippians is the thank you note for that generosity. And so right at the very end, he addresses it directly. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to go to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to begin at verse 10 and go through verse 20 today. All right, so here we go, beginning at verse 10. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of, financial give, of, matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphrodites the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering and acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To God, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. So we're going to take a look at these verses. And so here's the thing. Um, in our time together, there's a lot of places I could go. And uh, in, Tony Meridia, in his commentary, Exalting Jesus in Philippians, came up with this outline. And this is as good as any that I could find for these, for these verses. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do real quick. If you have your cell phones, take them out real quick right now. And I want you to take a picture of this slide. Okay, so as you're doing that, here's why I want you to do that. So grab your cell phones, take a picture. Here's the thing. There are six words that are described and pulled from this section, these, these 10, 11 verses. I'm going to talk about two of them. And what that means is that I gave you four opportunities to be in the Word of God this week, and I told you what you're looking for and what verses to be looking at. Right? So here's what we're going to do. What I'm not going to talk about today is I'm not going to talk about gratitude in giving and receiving. Paul talks about that in verse 10, how he's grateful for the gifts, but he's grateful to the Lord for the gifts that somebody has given. We're not going to talk about that. We are going to talk about contentment. I'm not going to talk about partnership, how, how Paul sees the financial giving and, and the receiving as a partnership within the church. He, he helps us understand there's a difference between being a consumer and being a partner, so if you are attending and you are a part of a place and you consider this to be a place in which you receive uh, uh, the, the gifts that God gives through the proclamation of the word and pastoral care, but you are not contributing financially, Paul would say, don't consider yourself a partner, consider yourself a consumer. You're consuming the product, but you are not a partner in it. Paul talked about that with churches. He's in Thessalonica. He is in need. And the Philippians are the ones that send him the help, not the Thessalonians, which are there. They're consuming what Paul is giving, but they're not partnering with him in his ministry. So I'm not going to talk about partnership today. I will talk about fruitfulness. I will not talk about worship, how giving is a worship. It's, it's this fragrant offering before the Lord. 
Also, as Paul receives a financial gift from somebody, he says that this is actually a gift given to God. So even though you're giving it to Paul, it's an offering given to God. He connects the two together. I'm not going to talk about that. And I'm not going to talk about how giving strengthens our faith, giving us an opportunity to grow in our understanding of how God provides, seeing him work, seeing him use the gifts that you give, and all of a sudden coming to the spot where you just break out in praise because of who God is and what he's done. I'm not going to talk about that either. But I will talk about contentment and fruitfulness. I just picked these two because I thought these would be the ones that would help us today as we, as we process this text. So the first one I want to look at today is, uh, is contentment. Verses 11 through 13. This is where Paul talks about this. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Paul looks and he sees his contentment, this idea of knowing that he has enough and being comfortable where he is. And yet, his contentment doesn't come from the circumstances around him. He says, I'm content no matter whatever, whatever the circumstances are. And when he talks about being in need or having plenty, he lived in both of those worlds. I mean, you can just about imagine, again, being in, in Philippi. If you remember back to Acts 16, which is when the church in Philippi began, he spends time in Lydia's house. Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman. And you can about imagine what it was like to live in that home, to have meals in that home, when that place became the central focus for the church so people would be coming in and they'd be spending time there. The word of God being proclaimed there. The meals and, and the lavishness that would have been present in that moment because that's who Lydia was. She's a wealthy woman who, who valued those and that's being used. So he knew plenty. He also knew need. And we can go back into First and Second Corinthians where he unpacks the need that he experienced. I mean, going hungry, living out on the open sea on some piece of driftwood for an entire day and an entire night, not being able to eat or drink. He knew it was like to be cold because he had no warm clothes. He knew what it was like to have tattered and torn clothing. Paul knew both need and plenty. And yet somehow he says, I am content. Because as Paul has seen contentedness, he saw that it is not connected to his circumstances. How many of us believe that we would be content if we had just a little bit more? Right, we're almost there. In fact, I mean, I can see it from here. Give me another month, give me another year, give me one more item, get me a little bit newer car, get me a little bit nicer house, and then that's what I'm going to get. I'm finally there. I, I can see it. We believe that our contentedness is tied to our plenty. We need just a little bit more. Can I just tell you the problem with having your contentedness tied to just a little bit more is that the gap between more and enough never closes. That gap between more and enough will never close. As soon as you get that nice house, you're going to need another couch to go in it. Right? And then you added a bedroom, so now we've got to get a new bed. But you can't just get a bed. You've got to get new bedroom furniture. So you've got always needing more. 
If we believe that our contentedness is tied to just having a little bit more, we will never achieve it. But sometimes we also believe that our contentedness is tied to having just a little bit less. Right? I have too much, so therefore I'm going to sell what I have, or it would be more holy if I sold what I had, and I'd be more of a holy person because I'd have less. Then I will be content. I have too much now, it's too lavish now, so all my contentedness will be found when I have less. Paul said that he was content whether he had plenty or whether he had little. How? Because his contentedness was not tied to his circumstances, but was tied to his Savior. Paul knew and Paul understood that his ability to be content came when he looked and he saw that Christ was enough. That Christ is enough. And the great thing is that Jesus is there and Jesus is present and Jesus is providing and Jesus loves and Jesus has given you his salvation whether you have plenty or whether you have need. The same Jesus is there. Paul tied his contentedness to his Christ. So it didn't matter what he had or didn't have in the moment. But I think we know this, don't we? I don't think I said anything that's too shocking for anyone yet. Why is it so hard then? This idea of contentedness has been, uh, and, and struggling with being content has been around for thousands of years, but where we struggle with this is living here, as foreigners here, is that we are con- constantly bombarded with a message to be discontent. And here's why. When you are discontent, others make money. When you are content, they don't make money. Think about this. Think of all the marketing messages you receive. Have you ever watched a marketing message given off by some brand and thought to yourself, man, I feel really good with where I am. I certainly don't need what they're offering. This is amazing. Has anybody felt that with an advertisement? If they did, they failed in their advertising. Because the whole purpose is to make you go, wow, I need a new car. My car isn't good enough. Man, I need new clothing. I have to go on a vacation because the last vacation I took six months ago wasn't good enough. Everything is designed to make you say, listen, where you are is not quite good enough, but I can get you to good enough. All of the marketing we experience is designed to keep us discontent so that they can make money. All of the news that you listen to and you watch and you consume is designed to keep you discontent. I have a piece of news and information for you. If you think that your news source, whether it be your cable news network of choice, whether it be your internet feed, or whether it be the radio station you listen to, if you think their job and their purpose is to keep you informed, you're wrong. Their job is to make money off of you. And here's how they make money off of you. Get you just to that edge of angry and depressed keep you there so that you continually consume the information that they give you. So you have to be mad at the other political party. You have to be angry with the way the world is going because if you're not, they're not making money. If you listen to the radio and you go, man, I feel really good with where I am today. I don't think I need to listen to this anymore. 
Their ratings go down. Their ratings go down. What happens? No money. They have to keep you on the edge. So they find the information, they find the spin to keep you angry, to keep you discontent so that they can make money off of you. You are not receiving the news. You're receiving a carefully curated amount of information spun the right way so that they can make money off of you. That's what you experience when you click. That's what you experience when you listen. That's what you experience when you watch. There is no neutral party in this. There's too much money at stake for it to be neutral. Everything around us constantly telling us to be discontent. So how can we find hope in this? How can we find something in this? Paul gives us a beautiful word in verse 12. He says, I have learned the secret of being content. I don't know about you. I don't know how you see Paul and how I see him fairly high on a pedestal. And when I have him fairly high on that pedestal, then I assume that something like the contentedness, that God just zapped it into him. Right, he is so good, he is so amazing, his writing is so great, God gave him some level of supernatural contentedness. It probably came when he got knocked off his horse on the way to Damascus, right? That's when he received this contentedness. But Paul's saying, I learned it. And here's why I love that word. It implies that he's lived this Christian life discontent at some point. And he's been on a process to learn the contentedness. And if Paul can learn contentedness, there's hope for the rest of us as well. So how does he learn contentedness? He does the two things we just got done talking about. He understands that content doesn't come with what I know and what I see around me and what I have. Content comes from Jesus Christ. So in the seasons of plenty where you have what you need and you're just working through the want list, focus and lean into Jesus. When you're in those seasons of need and you have things that you desire that are not just wants, but they are actual needs for your life, you focus on Jesus. Because whether you have need or you have plenty, content comes from Jesus. Verse 13, one of the often most misquoted scripture verses in all of the scripture. Usually translated as, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, which means as long as Jesus is with me, I can flip over a car in the parking lot. What Paul is actually saying, this verse is used in the context of content. I can do all these things. I can do all these things. I can be content in my need. I can be content in my, my want through him who gives me strength. It's a content verse. And he focuses his heart and his life back on Jesus. So I have a question for you. It's going to make you feel uncomfortable because it made me feel really uncomfortable and I didn't like reading it, but I did, so now you have to hear it too. (laughs) Here's Here's the question for you. Has a lack of contentment made you less flexible to live on mission for Jesus Christ? Has a lack of contentment made you less flexible to live on mission for Jesus Christ? The answer, by the way, is yes. I've learned the secret of being content. 
All right, word number four on that list was fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. Um, we, have a, we have a tree, an apple tree in our yard. And this year it produced exactly zero apples. And next year it will produce seven billion. It's just how it works. We're going to have a conversation, see if we can balance this whole thing out. But here's, when we first moved into the house, I didn't know what kind of tree it was. It was just, you know, there. How did I know that it was an apple tree? Because come spring, guess what was on the tree? Apples. It was a dead giveaway that it was an apple tree. Why? Because it produced the fruit that was in line with the DNA of what that tree was. We planted an ash tree, this nice decorative mountain ash by our patio in the backyard this past, uh, this past summer. Guess what we will not find on that tree next spring? Apples. Why will we not find apples on that tree? Because it's not an apple tree. The fruit that comes out shows what the DNA is inside. So fruit is a beautiful way in which the scriptures use to describe the work of the Holy Spirit, the transforming work that God has done in our hearts and in our lives. So as he changes our heart, the fruit comes out. All right, so here's what I want you to look at. I want to look at verse, uh, verse 17. And you're going to wonder why I title this together. NIV says it this way, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I love the NIV. It is the translation that I go to all the time. It's what I have grown up with. It's what we preach from. I love the NIV. I think they missed a little something here. All right? I know why they did it. I studied it. I figured it all out. However, here's the Greek. For those of you who read Greek, you know exactly what this says. For the rest of us, all right, the word in yellow is carpon. All right, that's a carpon. That's, that's the word for Greek. That's the word for fruit. The word fruit is in the Greek. And the NIV doesn't do anything with it. Again, I know why they did it. They, they, they didn't get it wrong. They just missed a nuance, which is why I love the ESV translation in this one. He says this, says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I love this. And here's why I love this. As Paul is saying, as he's saying, thank you for the gift, as he's thanking the Philippian church for sending the money, he's saying, listen, I'm not asking for more. And I didn't even seek your gift in the first place because God's going to provide for me. But you know what I loved when I saw this church? You know what I loved when I saw this Philippians? I loved that I got to see the fruit that comes from the generosity, or the generosity that is the fruit that comes from a transformed life. Their lives have been so touched and so impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ that they, re, that they had been changed inside. Their DNA had been changed and out came this fruit. And the fruit that came out was generosity, financial generosity in a tangible way to help somebody in need. It's not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit. Quick story, I preached this sermon last Sunday at our East Campus, and during the course of the week, I sat down and met with a guy, and he told me about his sophomore daughter who, leaving the worship service on the drive home, said, Dad, Dad, I think it's time that I start giving to the church on a regular basis. She had a part-time job, and she wanted to start contributing on a regular basis. And I got to look at him, and I got to say, do you know how wonderful that is? Not that I seek the gift, 
but I seek the fruit. Dad, do you know what you just saw? You saw the fruit coming out of God's inward work in the life of your child. God's doing something in her heart, and as a result, she has chosen to show that through generosity. As a pastor, I don't seek your gift. I seek the fruit. I would love our church to be so overwhelmingly generous that we have to try to figure out what to do with all the money. Why? Not because we seek the gift, but because that becomes this beautiful outpouring of what Jesus is doing inside of people. It's a fruit that comes out. So here's my question. Is financial generosity a fruit that is bore in your life because of what Christ has done inside of you? Financial generosity, as the scripture calls it to it, and you see it on this Philippian church who gave over and over again to Paul, is a natural expression of what God is doing on the inside. Is financial generosity a part of the fruit that comes from your life as Christ works in you? Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit. Beautiful expression of what God is doing in your heart. So as citizens of heaven, how we handle our money, what we do with it while we are here as foreigners, it matters to God, it matters to Jesus because it impacts the lives of people. This idea that as we lay up, uh, we lay up treasures in heaven as we do things here on earth, they may have lasting kingdom impact as we make gifts and we make a difference in the lives of people here on earth. So we learn to be content because a lack of contentment makes it really hard to give. It makes it really hard to receive. It makes it really hard to move and do the things God has called you to because you're tied up or you have a little bit more coming. God calls us as citizens to live financially generous for the kingdom of God. Paul is seeking one thing and one thing only, to make the credit side of the ledger of his churches grow as large as possible. Let's pray.